Zach Flight was shot on January 8th, 2017, and died from his injuries on January 9th. And this is his mother's story. Hello. It's Kelly calling from Morning the Murdered podcast. Hi. How are you doing today? Oh, my anxiety's through the roof, but I'm doing okay. Morning the Murdered is a podcast I created because in 1999, a friend of mine was murdered. My name is Kelly, and I am your host. I saw the effects that murder have on family members, and I wanted to give a voice to the loved ones of murdered victims. Every week, I interview the family member of a murder victim. So please be sure to tune in every Thursday to hear their stories on Morning the Murdered podcast. Zach was an only child for the first seven years of his life when his long-awaited sibling was finally born. He couldn't have been happier. This young boy enjoyed feeding and changing his sister and was the first one that wanted to hold and cuddle her. When this adorable baby sister of his began speaking, things changed a little. The typical sibling rivalry began. This brother and sister duo would be the first to fight with each other, but in turn would also be the first to back each other up. Their sibling arguing was kept between themselves, and no one else would be able to argue with them if the other was around as they would jump in and stick up for each other immediately. I'd like you to tell me what Zach was like as a young child. What type of a little boy was he? He was a very active, non-stop going little boy. I mean, he would be playing and stuff. He was a very friendly kid, so he had lots of friends. He would get up in the morning. He'd go non-stop until he would be face down, but near passed out. He didn't like school, so it was a pain trying to keep him in school. When he got into junior high and high school, he would start ditching with his friends and whatnot. But he ended up getting his GED, and he he's a friendly kid, so he got along wherever he was at. It was just what he had to do, he didn't want to do type situation. He started skateboarding when he was five years old and he actually, my daughter, she just turned 18 in March. He taught her how to skateboard and then um, he would be teaching other kids at the skate park how to skateboard and he was doing that all the way up until he passed away. He was doing it professionally for a while, doing tournaments. But then he didn't like the schedule and, you know, he liked to do it on his own time. But it was an everyday occurrence. Yeah, he was really good at it. Wow, skateboarding professionally. So so there would be competitions and stuff, you mean? Yes. And he would do that for a while, but then he didn't like having to be on a schedule, you know, type thing. So he quit doing that and just, he just skated every day. And he'd go to all the skate parks around the city, and he'd just hit every one of them. Zach's passion for skateboarding was tremendous, and the competition seemed too structured for this fun-loving guy. He preferred to just skate. 
He would head out to the various parks in the neighborhood, being confident in his abilities. He wasn't looking for recognition from judges. He simply skateboarded because he loved it. And what was uh, your relationship like with Zach, would you say? We were very close. I had just turned 18, January 31st, and I had him April 8th. So I was barely an adult, and I raised him by myself. And then I got married to my daughter's dad and whatnot, but we were very close. And then it was just me my son and my daughter, and my daughter always called us the Three Musketeers, and, you know, so it, we were very close, and he was very, very protective. For example, the skate park, when my daughter would go skate, he would be there, and everybody knows who Zach was, so they know who his sister was. But if a guy were to approach my daughter, he would be right there. What do you want to do with my daughter? What are your intentions? Why are you talking to her? And she would get so mad because, and I'm like, that he's doing his job. I wouldn't have had it any other way. He's doing what he's supposed to do is protecting you. What types of things did he do with his friends apart from skateboarding? Of course, I'm sure that was one of the priorities. <laughs> yes, um, he was like the class clown too. He always had to be the center of attention. And he would be real goofy and he could dance, he could sing. But if they would always just hang out, skateboard pretty much, um, or come to the house and hang out. Pretty much about it. His life revolved around his friends and his skateboarding. Yeah, a lot of his friends called me mom. Oh. In fact, some of them still do when they see me. Zach was a young man filled with love and was a bit of a free spirit. He was heading in a great direction in all aspects of his life. He was a loving son, brother, and friend. Zach enjoyed being at home with his family. His days wouldn't be complete if he didn't spend some time with the mother he loved so much. Their close bond was one that others certainly envied. Watching how this boy, and then man, would always have time for his mother and how he would gladly help her, be there for her in any capacity she needed. They were close. Zach's mother, Jamie, couldn't have asked for a more thoughtful, considerate, or charismatic son. She knew he would always be there to take care of her. His irresistible charm was part of what made him so popular with everybody. He was easygoing and dedicated to those close to him, his friends knew they could always count on Zach in good times and bad. He and his friends would spend hours together, spending many of those at his own house, encouraging the close bond that they all enjoyed with his mother, sharing her welcoming and accommodating attributes. His friends all felt at ease in Zach's home, knowing that their second mom was always available for them as well. Zach's sister held a very special place in Zach's heart, and he knew that his sister was a particularly exceptional girl that he always had his eye out for, being sure that she was safe and happy. He would have gone to any length to ensure she was being treated properly by anybody that wanted to spend time with her. 
She would outwardly find this aggravating at times as she grew, wanting to expand her friendship circle and meet new people while enjoying different experiences. However, this sister, who also loved Zack so much for his unique ways and his impish personality, knew that he was her defender and realized how lucky she was to have such a wonderful, attentive, and loyal big brother looking out for her. It was unimaginable to her to ever consider that Zack wouldn't be there affectionately meddling in her business forever. Unfortunately, tragedy struck the Flight family and Zack's sister would forever miss out on this affectionate meddling. This is the story of Zack Flight's murder. Please tell me about the devastating day you found out that your son had been murdered. I was in Phoenix. In fact, my daughter had moved to Washington because she got in trouble at school with weed. And she wanted to go try a different school. And Washington is where her real dad lives. So I told her, okay, we'll try one year and see how it goes. Well, she did really good. And she got good grades. And things started getting better for her. But she came down to visit for Christmas. And my son, he was dating this girl for like three months. And he was done with her. He was just using her. And I guess she is having an outpatient procedure and I had asked him to go be in the lobby with her just for support because I've had many surgeries and I'm like it's scary by yourself and then just take her to her parents house and wash her hands of her which is in Tucson and he's like oh mom do I have to I'm like just please for me so he went to go take her next thing I know I get a call about 1 30 in the morning telling me I need to get to the hospital and there was an accident, and I was so out of it, I didn't even realize what town we were in, what hospital we were in, and he got shot in the back of his head, about six inches behind his ear. And then what happened when you got to the hospital? When I got to the hospital, a lot of it's vague because I was in such a state of shock, I guess, um, What's crazy is on the way to Tucson, like I said, I didn't even realize where we were going or where we were, but I just kept saying, my son's dead, my son's dead, and my daughter was there because she was getting ready to go back to Washington the next day. That's when our flight was scheduled. Mm -hmm. So she was with us, and um, we were driving down, we were like, be positive, be positive. Well, when we got to the hospital, there was a chaplain that put us in a room, and he's like, he's on a ventilator right now. He's over-breathing it, but he's brain-dead, and it's not going to be life-saving. And I guess he decided he wanted to be an organ donor, and he had it on his license, and so they had him on the ventilators getting ready for the donation, but they wanted to see if they, if he would survive without the ventilator. So they did a test on him and he took one last breath and now is it. And it turns out that he passed away at the same hospital. I'm sorry. 
I had a map, and uh, so, yeah, and then I just remembered the donor network coming in and asking me if she could ask me some questions, and we went into another room, and I started answering the question. Sorry. That's fine. Don't worry about it. And uh, she kept telling me, thank you, thank you. And I said, don't thank me because I, if it was up to me, I'd have my son. But this was his wish, and I'm going to make sure that it gets carried out. That must have been so difficult for you, dealing with an yeah. organ donor and having to know what what was happening, the reality of why the organs were being donated. I'm so sorry you had to live through that. That is just absolutely terrible. Yeah. I mean, it's a good thing because everything was received but his pancreas. I mean, everything from his eyes to tissue to his heart. I mean, the only thing that was rejected was his pancreas. And it's beautiful that he did that. See, it shows back to, I was saying before from what you were saying, I could hear that he was a compassionate person and a kind, loving person. And I mean, to have done that at such a young age, to have been sure to be an organ donor is, is a really remarkable thing for a young man to do. You raised a very fabulous son. I tried. I mean, that was the hardest thing I've ever had to do, oh. <laughs> is be a parent. Yes. They don't give you a handbook for that. Before her surgery, Zach and his girlfriend had broken up, and Zach's ex-girlfriend texted Jamie to say that she would be dropping the stuff off he had left at her house at their home for him. Jamie, Zach's mom, said, of course, no problem. His son had broken up with this girl, but that didn't mean there was a problem between the two of them. Jamie thought it was a good idea for Zach's ex-girlfriend to drop everything else with her. That way, they didn't have to see each other again, knowing that can be difficult after a breakup. Zach's winning smile added to his appeal. His handsome face, along with that alluring personality, seemed to make him irresistible. One thing I forgot to mention about how his personality was. He had three babies between two sisters, but he liked to keep life interesting and made us into a Jerry Springer family. Oh my goodness. But so, okay. So explain got, that, explain that to us a little bit. Let's hear about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, one sister, her name's Heather. She was living with us for five years and I didn't know there was anything going on because that wasn't supposed to be happening under my roof. And then I, her younger sister, Melissa, came by and said she was pregnant, but they told me it was like an old high school fling or something like that. Well, Melissa ended up having her son, Sammy, in August. And he, after the night that he had him, my son told me, Mom, by the way, um, this is your grandson. I was like, whoa. Melissa has two babies, Sammy and Riley, the little girl, and then Heather, who was the one that was living with us, has Logan. So in August, one of the girls had a baby, which you were Sammy. told the next, Sammy, okay, which you were told the next day was your grandson? Yes. Well, the whole time I was under the impression it was an old high school fling or something. Gotcha. Okay. 
And then two months later, Heather had Logan, and I flipped out when I found that out. I was like, wait a minute. Um, you have two boys that are two months apart now, and they're they're supposed to be cousins, but they're brothers slash cousins. Wow. And then he made the comment, now I just need a little girl. I said, no, you need to go get fixed because you already have two kids you got to take care of. Well, lo and behold, a year later, little girl was born with the younger sister. So Sammy and Riley belong to the younger sister. Logan belongs to the older sister. Having had two sons with two sisters was certainly a potentially complicated situation. But they all seemed to make it work. These three children, two boys that were only two years old, and his daughter, who was only one, have tragically been deprived of their father, taken from them when they were just babies. As they grow, they will know him only through pictures and stories, warm memories that will hopefully help carry these toddlers through their lives as they become teenagers adults, and then parents himself one day, helping each of them feel his love somewhere deep within themselves. Adding to the many people who will continue through life without Zach being part of it. The two mothers of his children, the sisters, live together now with their three children. Zach's mother, Jamie, knows that as they get older, Trying to explain this unique family dynamic may be quite a mess. Zach spent much of his free time with these beautiful children that he absolutely adored. He was so proud to be a father. Zach was avidly pursuing a new career choice to see to it that he would be able to provide for his children. His childish side would become more pronounced when he would be with them and they would laugh and play. Jamie sees her grandchildren, rather regularly, about once a month or so, but is still grieving and struggles to see her wee grandchildren, one of whom is the spitting image of her son in every way, including his personality. She wants a closer relationship with the grandchildren she so loves and will continue to take the necessary steps she needs to get to the point She's emotionally able, but right now, she needs to take baby steps. I'm fighting for justice, and I haven't really accepted that my son's gone, because um, I, I know it's, he's never coming back, but it's like I feel like if I accept it, then I'm not going to get him his justice, if that makes sense in any way. I'm part of Parents of Murdered Children organization, and they're helping me. And um, so I, I'm just taking it. I can only do one minute at a time. Tell me about the police investigation. There was never an investigation. Um, when he passed, I guess the bullet never exited. So I had made two requests. I wanted a cell phone because of all the pictures, and I wanted the bullet. And I, the stories kept changing, excuses kept coming up, Dominique ended up blocking me on stuff, and nobody found his phone. So I requested the police report. 
thinking that maybe that would tell me where his phone was. And as I was reading in the police report, it was like one and one was not equaling two. And I started reading down. And now my son, he had two best friends that Brandon and Dino and their moms called my son, a son from another mother. And, um, one of them, her name's Danielle. She's been so awesome with me with this whole thing. She's been helping me and we were reading it. And at the end of the police report, it states that her parents are friends with the sheriff himself. And I had asked the supervisor of the sheriff's department, did you test forensic? Did you, you know, test for gun residue? And he told me, nope, that's only in the movies. At any death scene that is caused by gunfire, whether suspicious or not, there are many things that detectives are required to do. There are procedures, protocols, none of which were followed in any way. Blood spatter patterns are supposed to be checked. Gun residue tests are to be done. Pictures of the scene. Checks for evidence such as location of the gun. And if there is a bullet casing, among many other things. Not one of these things was ever done. The lack of investigation is horrendous and insulting to Zach's family. The police did absolutely nothing. When Jamie asked for her son's cell phone, somehow it was nowhere to be found. Jamie finds this very distressing and cannot wrap her head around how this phone could have even disappeared. Have you ever tried to reach out to his ex-girlfriend's family? I tried to reach out to her parents on his birthday to say, hi, I'm Zach's mom. Um, I was wondering if you by chance knew where his cell phone was, you know, and this kind of stuff, and they never responded to me. And a bunch of police that showed up were giving their own statements, and, like, one was saying that they were looking for a casing, and there wasn't one, but there should have been. Um, another main technical thing that I was trying to figure out is it took two hours to get my son to the hospital when it was they're only 10 minutes away. Like I said, I had him at the same hospital he passed away in, and I know where her parents was. So why did it take two and a half hours? And in the police report, it states that the ambulance and firemen were there, but they were told to wait until the supervisor got on scene. And I asked, why did, why were they told to hold off? And they said, because it was a gated community. Well, I don't care. You don't wait. If there's somebody's life that's in danger, you know, if they've been shot. And I was told by the Office of Eternal Affairs that when it's a call about a gunshot, they got to go and secure the scene first, make sure, you know, they get the gun, whatnot, and it's safe. Well, it was the fourth deputy that finally got on scene that actually cleared the gun. So the other three that were there, I mean, it was from one side of the room to the other side to the other side, but yet it was the fourth one that showed up that ended up clearing it. Zach was shot in the back of his head in a gated community 
where a code is necessary to open the gate. The police didn't enter. They knew a young man had been shot and was in critical condition, dying. Yet they didn't seem to have access to this area. That is so shocking. They sat and waited. Gated communities may be set up to be safe, but this is astonishing news. If someone is dying, paramedics do not have access? Or was it just because this family did not give them access? Some days later, the parents of the ex-girlfriend from the house that a young man died from a gunshot wound to the back of his head, someone's father, friend, brother, son, this woman, a mother herself, called the police and demanded they come and get Zach's belongings out of their house. The officer that answered explained that is not the way things work. Instead, the next of kin is to be notified and an arrangement will be made for them to receive the items. This mother began screaming hysterically into the phone to the point the officer had to move the phone away from his ear. And she was threatening that she would just call the sheriff directly then to have this taken care of. Apparently, from what Zach and Heather told me, is Dominique's parents didn't like my son. Because at that time, he was selling cologne in the back of people's trunks of their car. He'd go different states and they'd be selling cologne. And she was a rich kid. Her parents gave her fully loaded credit cards, paid for school, her vehicle. And my son met her selling cologne. And he was a type, he was a good salesman. If his mouth was moving, he was lying. I mean, he could have sold you the sun. You would have turned around and realized you bought it, but you had no idea what you bought or why you bought it. But you did because he was that convincing. And he had told her apparently he was going to get his doctorate and become a doctor. And she was going to nursing school. And so she kind of fed into it. And then he went and met her parents one time. And I guess they did not like him. When Zach drove his ex-girlfriend home from her appointment, he had the unfortunate timing that his truck broke down on the way to her house. A tow truck was called and brought them to Zach's ex-girlfriend's house. Her parents agreed that he would spend the night that night and then in the morning they would figure out what to do about the truck and getting him home. This was a potentially volatile situation seeing as Zach had very recently broken up with this girl. Zach owned a gun, and he had his gun there. He had a holster for his gun, which he wore until he was settling in for the night, and he would remove it. The holster was not on Zach when he was found dead, but in the other room, which implies he had already removed his gun for the night and it should have been in the holster, in the next room. But somehow, he was shot in the back of the head that night. We requested everything that had to do with my son's case. Everything from pictures, reports, and they, it took probably a year before they actually released the 911 call from that night, because 
all the 911 discs that they were sending me were me calling in, other people calling in, uh, interviews that we had because I was going down and staking out the sheriff's department until somebody talked to me. They would all have that feeling, the same as mine, that something wasn't right. But the minute they would start looking into it, it was shut down. That was it. They would never return my calls, nothing. So I would go down to Tucson, and I'm like, somebody needs to talk to me because this isn't making sense. Detective Flores actually came down and took us up to upstairs to another room, and he's like, I'm Detective Flores. You know, what's going on? I would like to hear what you say because he was a homicide detective, apparently. So I told him everything, showed him all my research, everything that I've, because I'm research saving. It's like the first year, it was almost like I was helping a friend that lost her son. It, I wasn't like associating it with me. And so I was able to go through things and um, I'm real organized with it. And so he's like, do you mind if I take um, copies of these? And I said, no, take whatever you want. So he made a bunch of copies of it, and he's like, okay, give me about a week, and I'll get back with you. Well, a week later, I get a phone call from him saying that he was waiting on one more report, and then he's going to take it to his boss the next day because he was doing this on his own time and never heard from him again. But then they finally released the actual 911 call, and it was just, wow. I mean, the dad sitting there laughing because we were trying to find the phone and he was saying um, on one of the discs that oh maybe it got rolled up in the bloody carpet and we ripped it out and it's in the landfill haha let them go look for it good luck and in the 911 call the mom was on the phone and she's like dispatch that okay so what happened and she said well she shot him oh and then the dispatch said wait what happened and she's like paused for a few minutes and she said well my daughter heard a noise and came in from the other room and he shot himself and she's like okay one more time and she kept with that story but it was so clear as day when the mom slipped up and said oh she accidentally shot him jamie has very diligently kept a binder with all the information she has acquired since her son's murder. She has this 911 recording, among others, this recording where people are laughing while Jamie's precious son, Zach, is lying there gasping his last breaths. She has kept a record of all communication she has had with the various departments and people she has spoken with, any paperwork related to the case, all recordings that were made to 911, and discs of any other recordings that have been made with various officials. Jamie has written a statement letter that she sends out to anyone and everyone that will listen, explaining her case, from the local police straight up to the president himself. How devastating it has been that no one will take a closer look, seemingly because Zach's ex-girlfriend has money, connections, and a relationship with the present sheriff. Jamie is helpless against this type of corruption. There are pictures that were taken that day of the crime scene, but the police will not release them to Jamie. 
The pictures will tell a very clear story of what happened. Jamie is a grieving mother who simply wants answers. Did his ex-girlfriend kill him? Or was it an accident? She won't be able to sleep until justice has been done. In the official police report, it clearly states that pictures have been sent to other departments. Jamie has been to internal affairs. Nothing happened. She spoke with the ombudsman and she was shockingly told that the parents of the ex-girlfriend don't want it released to the news media that a murder occurred in their home or even that their daughter's ex-boyfriend died under suspicious circumstances in their home, using the Privacy Act to hide behind. Jamie has connected with a paralegal who has been so immensely helpful to her and has been working during his free time on Zach's case. He has verified with the detective that there are indeed pictures of the bedroom that Zach received a shot to the back of his head in, these pictures have to be approved to be released by someone, but no one can or will tell them where the pictures presently are or who has to sign the paper that puts those pictures in Jamie's hands. If the police are not going to investigate, then the pictures are there for public record, and Jamie has a right to anything that is public record. What is it that the detectives internal affairs, the ombudsman, and everyone else that Jamie has spoken to is afraid she will see in them. Afraid of what an expert will see. If it was an accident, okay, fine. Then I'll let that rest and we'll move on. But if it's not, and it tells a bigger story, then that's what I'm going to pursue. And this paralegal guy had said, once we get the pictures, he's like, we will get them one way or another. But he's like, we will get those. Once we get them, then we'll sit down and come up with another game plan. If they tell a bigger story, then we're going to go from filing a civil suit to a criminal suit because then that's murder. So I'm like 50-50. I'm kind of hoping that it doesn't tell a bigger story. But I think it's going to tell a bigger story because of the way They've been with me this whole time. When Jamie spoke of Zach's case with the medical examiner, they interestingly told her that in gunshot cases such as these, they usually send their own team of investigators to the scene to deduce what happened firsthand. But in this particular case, the sheriff specifically told them they wouldn't be needed. Another moment where you have to take pause and say, why not? Whenever Jamie begins to tell her story to anybody in the criminal or judicial system, as soon as they hear the sheriff is involved, they shut down. They stop talking. Again, how come? So much frustration Jamie has to face. Brick walls, potential corruption within the town's police force a home that her son died in with a family that shamefully won't talk, won't give solace to a desperate mother that just wants answers, but instead hides behind policy and the sheriff. 
There is someone that Jamie has spoken with that plans to be running for sheriff, and he promised Jamie that this case will certainly have his attention from the get-go. He will pursue it with new eyes and definitely have his team of detectives working on it. Meanwhile, Jamie still fights. She has requested the much-needed photos of the bedroom in so many different manners, including how she went into the station and requested them in person. She filled in an online request form, and she has mailed a certified letter ensuring no one can say it was never received. She receives the same information each time, the information that she already has, the information that is lacking, the only one key piece of evidence that she needs yet somehow can't get. What happened, uh, unfortunately, on that day? You said that your son, very good for you, by the way, having him go and sit with her in a waiting room, drove her home. So then they went into the house. Is that right? Yeah, he was taking her home. Apparently, they I don't know what they were doing, but they showed up at like 7 or 8 at night, and his truck broke down and on the way. And so I guess her dad got a tow truck and had it towed to his house and he told him, okay, you can stay tonight and then tomorrow we'll get your truck going and you go home. And that was the last I heard. Now, like I said, in the police report, there's so many different stories. Her story's changed many times. The parents' stories has changed. So <clears throat> I don't even know what really happened. My gut's always been, I think, she did it, but I don't think she did it on purpose. Zach's ex-girlfriend told the investigators that the two of them had been drinking before his death occurred. However, the talk screen said the opposite. No alcohol was found in Zach's system. The inconsistencies she gives is astounding. There are no clear answers. Ever. Um... We pretty much were at a standstill, um, and I know that because, trust me, I've gone any and every route. I've gone to what they studied to become cops. I've, you name it, I've been there one way or the other, and um, it's just we're stuck because the pictures will tell the whole story, and that's the one thing they will not release. And what frustrates me and I went when I was complaining to the eternal affairs who overlooked the sheriff's department I said you guys are treating this as like a dog that got hit by a car You're not treating it as somebody's son somebody's brother somebody's dad I said he had three babies I said do you have kids and he looked at me and he's like yes I do and I said how would you feel if the situation was reversed and he's like, honestly, I can't answer that. And I said, yeah, you can't. And you better hope you don't have to ever answer that. But if for some reason you do, you better hope the people actually give a damn about your kids. Because nobody in this situation is giving a damn about mine. And I wanted to give up many, many times. But I got, there was an attorney at the beginning when I was on that AVO site asking questions, he emailed me and he said, would you mind if I gave you a call? 
I don't work in that kind of field, but I just want to give you my input. He asked a couple questions. I said, I'll take whatever I can get. Well, he asked questions, and I answered, and at the end, he said, you know what? He's like, you've got a long, hard fight on your hands. He's like, but you have a fight. He's like, if you don't get anywhere on the first level, you go above them. If you don't get anywhere there, you go above them. And you keep climbing, and you keep climbing. He's like, it could take five years. It could take 10 years. It might even take 20. But eventually, money and friendship's only going to go so far. And when you apply pressure to pavement, it's going to eventually crack if there's enough pressure applied. He's like, you're your son's voice, and you can't give up. You have to get your son justice. And when he told me that, it just, every time I feel like, why am I doing this? Why am I fighting this fight? I, that voice comes in my head and it says, I'm my son's voice and it's true. I'm the only one that can get him this justice that he deserves. On January 5th, he found out, because I kept telling him, you got to quit this selling clone stuff and get a real job. You got three babies you need to support now. So he decided he wanted to be a police officer. So he did whatever he needed to do. And on the 5th, he found out that they were scheduling them for to take the exam on the 20th of January. And he was so excited and blasting it all over Facebook. So that's another thing that it's like, he's not the suicide type. He's the type that would walk by a mirror, stop, take a look at himself, and then <laughs> continue walking. He couldn't walk past the mirror without stopping. Jamie had an upcoming surgery that she was feeling stressed about. It was scheduled in January, only a few short days after Zach died. He kept telling his mom to relax, that she would be fine, that he would be there for her. He was reassuring her that he was going to take care of her and there was nothing to worry about. He was saying this the day before he died. It certainly is tragic that Zach is dead and Jamie is suffering, just wanting to hear the truth. Whatever that may be. Her new paralegal friend is still working on the case for her and has vowed not to stop until they get those pictures from the crime scene the ones that will tell Zach's story for him, as he no longer can. Cases like this one go uninvestigated all the time, and it has to stop. Every single person's life is worth something, regardless of what you have or what you do with your life. You are somebody's loved one. People were counting on Zach to be there for him. His three wee children and their mothers his mother and sister, his numerous friends. He was always a happy guy who loved life. He was anxious to become a police officer. He loved his children and couldn't wait to see who they grew to become. Tell me a little bit, what was he like as a father? Oh, he was a great dad. I mean, he loved his kids. He was with them all the time. Heather, the one with the one son that was living with us, she was still living with us. And then Melissa and her babies would come over every day. And he loved his kids. Absolutely loved them. 
Jamie is fighting with all her might for her beloved son, Zach. She desperately misses him and only wants the truth. That certainly shouldn't be too much to ask. Keep up the fight, Jamie. The answers are only one person away, and I am confident with all of your hard work, you will find them. I want to really thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you. I appreciate the time and that you're giving me. I mean, it's huge. Thank you very much. You take care. Thank you. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, everyone. I just wanted to let you know that we now have a Patreon link that you can access in the episode show notes. You can contribute as little as $1 a month or send a one-time payment through our PayPal account, also in our show notes, or at morningthemurdered at gmail.com. These contributions allow us to continue producing a weekly episode helping families be able to tell their loved ones' stories. I want to thank you all so much for your support. And don't forget to join our Facebook group. I'm not quite sure how people move on after a tragedy. There are support groups online and face-to-face, and there are books and family and friends to lean on. But in reality, when someone loses a loved one to murder, they lose a piece of themselves that can never be returned. Memories are all that are left. So talk about your loved one and let the world know how important they will be to you forever. These memories become valuable treasures. No one will ever understand your pain, but surround yourself with those that can understand how important it is for you to share your story. I will now light a candle for the victim and their loved ones ensuring their memory lives on and burns brightly. You are remembered. I want to take a moment and extend my most sincere and humble gratitude to each and every one of you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, or if you would like your voice to be heard on Morning the Murdered and tell the story of your loved one, email me at morningthemurdered at gmail.com. That's M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G-T-H-E-M-U-R-D-E-R-E-D at gmail.com. Thank you to Dennis for editing this podcast. You are absolutely indispensable. Thank you so much. A huge shout out to Patrick for creating the original music that you hear. And the artwork for this podcast was created by Talia with support from Matt and Mick. Thanks so much, guys.